The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. God bless you, Ecclesia. Um, sometimes prayers are just for me, so I'm going to face things this week that I don't have the ability to face, but my guess is I am, uh, I'm not the only one. It is uh, beyond exciting to me to be back in the place that I love to be sharing at Ecclesia on the west side. Um, it's a little crazy to me that it's um, this far into 2019 and it's my first time uh, to share with you, but such is, uh, is life and part of that life has been really good. Um, as you can imagine, when you're a pastor and I've spent now, this is the 20th year of Ecclesia, uh, for more than 10 years of our life, I, I've been preaching five services uh, a weekend. Um, when you preach five services a weekend, you can just imagine the amount of quality time that you get with your family over the course of a said weekend, right? It is zero. And um, so you rely on times to get away and be together. And so right after all the craziness of how many Christmas Eve services did we do? We did six Christmas Eve services. Two days later, uh, Lisa and I and our four kids, we jumped on an Amtrak train right by our building at Elder. And the Amtrak took us all the way to LA. And uh, we had a blast. Lisa and I thought it was amazing. Uh, the landscape that you get to see, things that you can never see from the freeway. Uh, our kids seemed to mostly enjoy it. When they found out that um, it was actually more expensive to take the train than it was to fly, um, they were crushed. I mean, just crushed. They thought we were doing this to save money, right? And so they're like, we know you're cheap, so we figured, you're just being cheap. We're like, no, no, it costs more. They're like, why would you not just get on a plane and be in LA? This makes no sense, parents. There was literally gonna be a riot. Um, like, it's uncomfortable, it takes a long time, and you get there later than you would have for more money. They didn't get it at all. Um, but for us, we thought it was really beautiful and was an adventure. And then I got to do one of my favorite things to do, which is take Ecclesians. Uh, to the Holy Land, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And I'm gonna get to do that a few times this year, and I'm really grateful for it. And if you wanna go, you're now looking at 2020 as the next chance to go, likely in February. And then I'm picking up on a series uh, Jim shared with you from last week. Uh, we, uh, Sean started it out. I'm curious uh, how many of you were blessed by Erica's message a couple of weeks ago, right? Beautiful message, she did a fabulous job. Um, she has become quite a preacher in her limited uh, experience. Just is such, got such a gift to share. So I'm curious, because I thought it was a great sermon. Uh, how many of you remember the things that she told you uh, that love does? Anybody remember the things that she told you love does? Love empathizes. What was the one over here? Love knows. There's one more. Love includes and expands. This is amazing. Every service, people have nailed it. I do this with my sermons all the time, and people stare back at me. <laughs> you don't have a clue what I said, but two weeks ago, you remember what Erica said. Wow. I should quit. Um, <laughs> so for a minute, I'm going to just pick up on uh, a, a piece of Erica's sermon, and then I'll get to my sermon. One more thing uh, that love does. We find this one in John chapter 3. In verse 16, it tells us that for God so loved the world that he, he gave. So love gives. And Ecclesia, there's a ton of reasons that I'll tell you I think you're the best church on the planet. There's no perfect church. Every church is broken. It's filled with broken people. 
Luckily, we have a perfect Savior. But I go to different churches, and I'm just, I, I'm so thrilled to come home to you for many reasons. There's an authenticity. There's a joy. But I'm, a, I'm thrilled to be a part of a church that truly gives. And so I wanted to share with you that as we pulled our resources towards the end of the year, uh, especially during Advent, to bring clean water to people that desperately needed it in the name of Jesus, uh, that you gave a little over $700,000 to bring clean water to people that need it. And I think that's a beautiful thing. That's a great gift. There are always temptations for churches to say, we should raise that money and do this with it or this with it. And I just wanna tell you, I don't think there's a better investment that we make um, I'm not a renter. I don't like to rent things. If you lease your car, that's on you, Dave Ramsey, and you can talk about it later about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, I'm with Dave Ramsey but, um, on that particular thing. But this is what I will tell you. Um, I, I like to buy things, like things that last, because it feels like you bought it and it's there and you own it and you can take care of it. And that's, that's why we buy water wells. I mean, literally, when we go to the Holy Land, we go and visit uh, a well dug by hand by our grandfather Jacob, you know, several millennia. And if we care well for a, a water well, it's one of those things like we didn't just do it for that day. If it's maintained, it lasts. And so I just want to remind you what a beautiful gift it is that we give, not just to people today, but it, that gift keeps giving when it's maintained uh, well. We, um, we've got a number of places in the coming weeks that I'm going to get to give you some beautiful updates on the ways uh, that you give. So in the series, part of what you have heard, if you've been around, and if you missed any, I want to encourage you to pick up the podcast. Sean reminded you at the beginning that before there was anything, there was love. That God is love. If I was a pharmacist, the way I would explain it to you is the active ingredient in God is love. Right? The active ingredient is what makes the drug the drug, right? And the active ingredient in God, the thing that makes God God is that God is love. And what we know from the scriptures is that Genesis tells us that then God created us, humanity, in his image. That he created us in his image, which means the active ingredient in us is. So this is where it gets fascinating to me. The active ingredient in God is love. God created us in his image. The active ingredient in us is love. What we hear in the gospel of John is that he says, I'm going to even double down on you. Because now that I leave, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send my spirit, really fully God, to dwell where? Within us. So we're made in the image of God and the active ingredient is love. The spirit of God has now come to dwell within us, which means love is present in us. And so my big question is if all of that is true, the active ingredient is love. We're made in God's image, which is love. And love itself has come to dwell within us. Why is it not our natural impulse or reflex to love? Why isn't it just the natural reflexive thing we do? I love the example that Erica used in traffic, right? She had a boot on in traffic and she, somebody's honking at her. Like in traffic, why is it not your impulse? This happens in Houston every day, right? Somebody's got just barely enough space to get, and they just, they squeeze in on you, right? Why is, why is your impulse not this, right? Why is your impulse, why isn't this? Anybody blowing kisses in traffic? Anybody? 
Somebody pulls in front of you, just like, God bless you. I love you. I love you so much. I love you. I'm praying for you. I love you. Nobody does that. It's not our ref our reflexes. Why is that our reflex? If God's spirit dwells within us and it is love, and our active ingredient of God is love and we're made in his image, why isn't it that love, why isn't our first impulse, you must be having a bad day. Are you headed to the hospital? Do you have a problem? Is there something I can help you with? Doesn't occur to us, does it? It's just, you're messing with me. And so I wonder, why is it? And what might we do to live in such a way that love actually becomes our reflex, our instinct? And part of what I'll tell you is that through the work of the Spirit, I believe it's possible. One of the passages that most blows my mind Part of what you need to know, even as I prepare to go back to the Holy Land, one of the things that gets me so excited, there is something for me that is mystical and magical about reading a passage in the place that it happens. There's just something about standing near the mountain that they believe to be the mountain where Jesus fed the 5,000. Just grabbing a little pita bread and eat it by myself and you're like, it's not multiplying at all. It's just, <laughs> it's just staying the same. And reading that passage, right? And just going, it, ha it happened here. Being on a small boat in the Sea of Galilee and it starts to get dark and imagining and then reading this passage where Jesus sent the disciples out and in the middle of the night, he creeps up on them, walks on the water. Now, if you're out in a boat, again, you don't have your iPhone, you don't have flashlights. Some dude starts walking up to you. That's a weird day. And something beautiful happened and Peter starts walking on water and we see Jesus' power. We also see our ability to get afraid again and Peter goes down and Jesus pulls him up. I read these passages, right? But women just come and they touch the hem of Jesus' garment and they're healed, right? So in John, there's this passage in John and John says, see all this that I've done? Jesus says, all of this, when I'm gone, you and those who follow you will do greater things than I did. I read that passage and I'm just like, wait. Because Jesus had these superpowers, right? And I'm, I'm pulling the pita bread and it's still just smaller pieces of pita bread. And I'm looking and I'm going, well, what, where, where's my superpower? Well, keep reading the book of John. And you know what he says to us? He says, when you come together and love supernaturally, that's your superpower. If you'll love together the way I loved, the world will be a radically different place. And so in the same way that I would think of when I was a kid, right? Because you when you're a kid, you read the Bible and you read comic books like you're looking for superpowers. Ecclesia, you need to know you've got a superpower and it's love. But the challenge is, just like for me when I was reading, anybody else read comic books when you're a kid? Anybody still read comic books from time to time? I pick them up from time to time. I'm not ashamed. I'm a nerd. Call me a nerd. If you come to Open Door sometime, you'll hear the whole story of how my love for comic books actually allowed our church to exist. So I owned a number one amazing Spider-Man comic book 
And part of selling that was part of what became the down payment to allow Ecclesia to exist. There are often these comic nerds that come to Open Door and they want to tell me how much that number one amazing Spider-Man is worth today. I don't want to hear what it's worth today. I don't like you, leave the church forever. I don't wanna know. <laughs> Those are offensive words to me. Um, but this is what I can tell you. I, as much as I can enjoy still picking up a comic book, um, some staff kids left one around the office this week and I picked it up and glanced through it. I'll never read a comic book again like I did when I was eight. There was something about being eight and I'd read Superman for a morning and then when my grandmother wasn't looking, we were swimming in her pool, I'd climb up on top of her garage and jump off into the deep end, right? And for just a moment, when you jump off the garage, you think, I don't know if I'm gonna drop, like for just a moment, am I the only one? You have this longing for the superpower. Ecclesia, you've been given a superpower, I've been given a superpower. The problem is that we eat, drink, breathe, and sleep the very thing that is kryptonite for our superpower. We're consumed by it. The only thing, there's only one thing that will destroy our superpower, and we've made it our life. It surrounds us, waking and sleeping. It's the one thing the Bible says is the opposite of love. It's the kryptonite of love. Anybody remember what the Bible says is the opposite of love? Fear, you got it, fear. The Bible tells us where there is love, there will not be fear. And where there is fear, there will not be love. And so we wonder from time to time, why isn't my reflex to love? Because fear is present. When fear is not present, love, it will be your reflex. Literally, we see it in our personal relationship, our family relationships. We've even seen it in the church. Anybody else? I'm sad to say it. It brings sadness to me. But I grew up in a church that believed that fear was a good way to motivate people, right? We used to show films to the kids, these awful films where all the people got their heads chopped off, right? It was like, if you don't want to get your head chopped off, you might want to come to Jesus, it's a bad, if you enter, let me explain this to you. If fear is your motivator, even entering into 2019, some of you, your health, it's not good. And you're afraid. If fear is your motivator to try to get healthy, it won't last. You'll be afraid and you'll go to the gym twice, maybe three times. But you know what happens if love is your motivator? If your motivator is that God loves you and gave you a body and it's your responsibility to worship him in the way that you care for it and you love the people around you and in your family and you wanna serve God with your body and so you're gonna care for it. If love is your motivator, it'll radically change your 2019. But fear, it won't last you very long. The media and politicians use fear to try to get us to act at every single corner. I started to pull together a little media montage uh, of current moments of examples where fear is used, and it was literally too painful to watch. So I thought, let's look back to the good old days when fear was not as big a deal. Um, 
and it seemed like a much calmer climate. What was it like in 2014, let's say? That seems like a fabulous year. This is 2014. So don't worry, everything's fine. It's just Ebola on the backs of ISIS. <laughs> don't worry at all. Now, Ecclesia, it's only funny because it's insane. I was in Liberia when Ebola started to spread. I came home and it felt like it was only weeks or maybe months and I watched the people around me quickly move from being empathetic and praying and longing to serve those in Liberia to losing their absolute minds in fear for themselves. I, I'd go into hospitals, this one right down the road, and you walk into the hospital and they had a big sign that said, if you've been to Africa, report to the front desk. Anybody remember seeing those? Like Africa's a continent, it's a continent not a country. This is a professional place, right? The idea that you're gonna get Ebola, much less on the backs of ISIS, the idea that you're gonna get Ebola. I'm just telling you, Ecclesia, none of you are ever getting Ebola. None of you. It's not gonna happen. Nobody in this room, unless you're a medical professional, is coming in contact with other people's human fluids on a regular basis, none of you. None of you. Anybody get thirsty this week and you got so thirsty you decided you were gonna go down to the bayou and get a drink? Anybody get a drink from the bayou? Ever? You grew up in Houston, some of you. Anybody get thirsty and go to the bayou for a drink? Right. Why'd Liberia, why'd Liberia Ebola spread like wildfire? Because people drink from rivers and streams. They're drinking the body fluids of other people in rivers and streams. That's why they got Ebola. You know what happened in the communities where Ecclesia had been drilling water wells from back 15 years ago? No one got Ebola. No one. Because you worshiped 13, 14, 15 years ago and gave generously at a day that we couldn't even give generously. It was amazing. And we drilled water wells in communities and nobody got sick. I, I could rant, I'm just telling you. It, you know how many doctors there were in all of Liberia when Ebola started to spread? 50, 50. We have more than 50 doctors that will be in worship services at Ecclesia this weekend. You're not getting Ebola. But you know what happens when we start talking about you maybe getting Ebola? We start getting afraid that we're gonna get Ebola, our kids are gonna get Ebola. As Soon as you get afraid, it's impossible to empathize with others. You stop loving once you give in to fear. Now, part of what I wanna tell you is like I sympathize because for you and for me, it feels like there's a whole system designed to play on our fears. It's inviting us to be afraid. 
So part of what I'm suggesting is to you have to live with such a connection to Christ that you find a, a way and a place to live out of faith and not out of fear. Now, where did all this start? If you go back to Genesis chapter three, this is what we see. God created the whole world. He said it was good. He created mankind. He said, that's good. Then he said, but man shouldn't be alone. He created Eve and womankind. And again, at some point, I'll reteach all of Genesis for you. Genesis is one of those books that often uh, people have become afraid of. It's some of the most beautiful parts of Scripture and important parts of Scripture. It's a poetic rendering of how God created all things. Now, if you try to apply science to poetry, you're going to get a little off, okay? But it is the true story of the poetry of how God created all things. And he created mankind. And what we know is that mankind came to a point where he said, we're not cool with being creation anymore. We want to be like the creator. We want to have knowledge and power that's like God. And all of us can identify with that temptation. And what we know is that when that occurred and mankind crossed that line, God came to pursue mankind because that's what God does is pursue. And in Genesis 3, it tells us that God was speaking to mankind and he said, mankind, where are you? And mankind said, when I heard the sound of you coming in the garden, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. This is not ecclesia, an old, unfamiliar story. Can you think of a place in your journey that you felt naked and vulnerable? You were afraid and you hid? A place you felt vulnerable you were afraid and you hid? I hope you can, because I got about a dozen I could tell you. A little more than a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, in the days after uh, the storm, um, I don't know where you were during the storm, but um, to be the pastor of Ecclesia in the days after Harvey, I, I don't even have words for what it was like. Um, from time to time I would run into people and they'd be like, did you see this on TV? And you're like, I haven't seen TV in five months. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, we're knee deep in mud. But in the midst of all that was going on, it literally like our worlds got canceled, right? I had one appointment that I felt God tell me, my family encouraged me, you got to keep it. Um, before the storm hit, uh, I had gone to see a cardiologist because my dad had a uh, a series of congenital heart defects. And this cardiologist said, you kind of look like your dad, like you need to get tested. And so they set up a whole day, a battery of tests. And one of them's a heart MRI that I absolutely hate and did the whole thing. Well, six days after the storm, it was time for me to go in and get that done. It also happened to fall on the day. Uh, my grandmother had died just days before and we were gonna have my grandmother's funeral on that day. So a bunch of heart tests in your grandmother's funeral doesn't amount to one of your favorite days on the planet, right? And in the midst of Harvey, I don't think I'd laid down to be quiet for 45 minutes, ever. Um, sometimes not sleeping. So they run me through these tests, they get you, they shove you in this small tube. They, uh, 
They have loud noises all around you and this guy starts telling you to hold your breath for 25 seconds at a time, right? And you're like, forget you, I'm gonna die. Right? This, is not, this is not okay. And then they, when it's not enough, right, you've been in there for about an hour, they go, okay, now we're going to inject you with something that's going to make your heart feel like you're going to have a heart attack, but you won't die. Like, get me out of here. Right? Like, this is awful. Right? I'm, I'm just here today to tell you, like, that's what hell is going to be like. It's going to be like a heart MRI. So turn to Jesus now or you'll spend eternity in a small white tube where your heart goes crazy. Jesus loves you. He doesn't want that for you. Right? I got out and they told me, yeah, you got some things. You're going to have to keep doing this for like six months, right? Now, remember, I felt vulnerable. I don't like to be sick. I was afraid. What do you think I did? Six months later when I was supposed to be back inside that heart MRI, where do you think I was? I was not at the heart MRI. A year later, when I was supposed to be back at the heart MRI, where do you think I was? Not at the heart MRI, right? It took my doctors finally going like, you can't hide forever, right? And a year and a half later, I said, all right, I'll get back in your stupid little tube, right? But I got to tell you, Ecclesia, it's easy to feel vulnerable, to be afraid, and to hide. What we want to do but what, when I'm in that place, you know how, I, how well I love others? Not very well. When I give in to fear, I lose my capacity to love. So 1 Corinthians 13 does a beautiful job of defining love. It also, when you flip it on its head, it offers you a perspective of what fear looks like. This is what I would tell you because fear is the opposite of love, that this is another way to understand what the Apostle Paul was saying. Paul is saying, fear is impatient. Is anybody impatient this week? You're... That's good. That's good. There was one of us that wasn't. That was good. I'm so proud. 99.9%. So good. Right? If you're impatient, right, you're afraid. Who is unkind? You're afraid. Envious. Afraid. Brag and boast. Anybody remember a place where you, your state of mind was clear enough, you weren't so affected by your ego that you could hear someone bragging and you could just really clearly go like, you, you, if you were close enough to them, you could ask them like, what are you afraid of? Like you could just see, like, this isn't arrogance, this is fear. And quite likely if you look, you'd see it in yourself. I see it in myself. He says, fear is arrogant, fear is rude, fear is crude and indecent. Fear is self-absorbed, and fear is easily upset. When you're afraid, you'll be so easily upset. I got to tell you, in marriage, this is one of those places. If you live in a place of fear and you're constantly easily upset, it is so destructive to your relationships. 
If you don't abandon fear, it will catch you. It will catch up with you. He tells us fear tallies wrongs. Fear keeps the scorecard. Fear knows you're the people I can't trust. You're the, you did this and I've got a card and I've got it all written down. That's what fear looks like. My counselor, Dan Allender, says it this way. He says, fear, all fear, is rooted in a sense of exclusion, exile, and permanent abandonment. He said, if you look deep into fear, all of them will lead back to exile, permanent abandonment, isolation. There's this sense that I'm gonna be alone. I'm gonna be left out. It's part of the reason that the Gospel of John, which talks the most about love, you know what else it talks about the most? It's constantly talking about connection. Jesus is constantly saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches, we're connected. I'm in you and you're in me and I'm in the Father. I'll never leave you or forsake you or abandon you. And even when I leave, I'm gonna go and prepare a place for you. Read the Gospel of John just over and over and over. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to leave you. I'm with you. And we have to be a people that immerse ourselves in God's story in a way that says we can see that God is with us. So what is it that we fear? I could do a 12-week series on it. But I want to just offer to you a few things that I think we're afraid of. But primarily, I want to invite you to do this in a way that's reflective of yourself. Now, this is a bit painful because in some ways, I'm asking you to do, do your own spiritual MRI. To look at your own heart, to ask God to look at your own heart. This is how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 139. He says, explore me, O God, explore my heart and know the real me. Dig deeply and discover who I am. Put me to the test and watch how I handle the strain. Now, I'm just telling you, that's not a prayer that I get really excited to pray. <laughs> Modify it as you will. I'm more like, God, give me an easy test and help me with it. Thank <laughs> Can I get the answers before the test comes out, please? And could you grade it on a curve? He says, this is what I want you to do. Examine me to see if there's an evil bone in my body and guide me down your path forever. Now, let me just give you the answer before you even hear the, the fullness of what God will say to you. There is an evil bone in your body. There are ill motives in your, in your heart. Now, some of them are mixed in with really good motives and that's where it gets really confusing, right? It's like you're trying to look through the ingredients. And you're like, there's some really good stuff here and there's some not good stuff here. And even the, the best things I do, maybe the best, I got 80% good motives and 20% not good motives. And I've gotta be willing to say, God, will you take a look at my heart? Now, here's the key. That's not easy to do in a community where everybody's, because Jesus said it, right? You're gonna be really good at spotting other people's ill motives. You're gonna see the speck in your brother's eyes with 20-20 vision. You don't have glasses or anything, but you know exactly where it is in their eye. And Jesus just said, that's how it is. You can see it. And you may be right about it. But he says, we wanna be in a community that's just going, I, I gotta focus on my eye. And you know what? It's huge and I can't see it. It's huge and I don't know how to get it out. Okay, let's work through it together. But if you're in a community that's coming after people because of the specks in their eye, it'll wear you out. Anybody been a part of a community like that? It's toxic. 
So we constantly have to be saying to one another, hey, I know you got specks in your eye, but I'm dealing with mine. And if you need help, I'll deal with yours. But I'm not coming to you in judgment, not coming to you in anger. Now, sometimes their specks are going to bother you. I'm pretty sure yours are bothering, her, bothering them as well. Right? And that's the patience we have to live with. So what are the things we fear? Let me just give you a few. We'll take communion. The first may be obvious but it's part of what we fear and it's part of what living in the Christian narrative can only remedy, right? We're a people that are created and we're made to enjoy this life and every breath, but we're a people that naturally fear death. There are a lot of reasons we fear death. I'll be honest, being a pastor and having from time to time to walk through the loss of a child, death is less fear, uh, fearful to me if we all just die in order we all just die in order, I'm, I'm pretty okay with it. Me and God have to keep having conversation about why are we not all dying in order? And he doesn't really answer me. Right. Ultimately, I'll get an answer, but this is what I know, is that I'm called into a Christian narrative and a Christian story that says death is not the end and death is not something to fear. That Jesus has conquered sin and death, and whether it's my death or my fears for my kids or my loved ones or my nation or the church, that it's in those places that I have to offer those back to God. And this is the only remedy I got for you. The only remedy I got for you is that when we're not a part of a church regularly, when we're not worshiping on a weekend, and what happens is when you come into church on a weekend and you're reminded we're not a people that fear death, we're a part of Jesus' story, the things that we do and the things we participate in are not of this world. And if you're like me, I leave taking communion, body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ shed for you. I leave like I'm not afraid of death. And you know what? I'm generally not afraid of death until Thursday. Thursday, I start getting a little afraid of death. I've heard some things on the news. They're trying to pull you in, right? And, and I hear about some kid that committed an awful, horrific act. And I just all of a sudden, you start going, man, I, that's... And I feel that tension, that anxiety build up. And then I, if I can come back to church, body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Jesus has conquered death. Okay, good. I want to just invite you, immerse yourself in the story of God. Read the scriptures throughout the week. Pray and offer yourself to God. Be a part of Christian community. It's a gift. Secondly, sadly, um, I think often we go to great lengths to give ourselves something to fear. In the beginning in Genesis, I think we, we were created and there was so much different, right? Every bird was different, humankind was different, man and woman were different and we could appreciate differences. And what's happened somewhere along the way is that we've started to decide that different is not good and different is scary. And so what we do is we create, we create an other. Now we need to be aware that though we have created another, there is no other, there is only us, us, and more of us. There is only we, we, and more of we. That when we start to categorize those people, you've created a category that God doesn't see. He doesn't acknowledge. But it's easy for us to create an other and then begin to fear that other. 
And so my encouragement to you is to lean into Christian community and lean towards those that you might think of as being the other. One of my favorite things about taking people to Holy Land is that so many people don't realize how much they're going to love Arab and Palestinian people. And they meet Arab and Palestinian people and they sit in their home and they eat their food and they go, Pastor, I love these people. These are not the stereotypes you've been given on the news. In fact, there is no one that you will hear of in a stereotype on the news that you will naturally love. Just be clear, whoever they are. It will not lead you to love. But you know what will happen when you sit with somebody and you ask them about their kids or their hopes or their dreams? You go, I love you. If you throw in some good food, you're going to really love them. And that's what we do. I'd invite you to go downtown after the 11 o'clock service and join the Simple Feast and sit with homeless brothers and sisters. Go once a month to the Harmony Barbecue. If you can't love a homeless brother while you eat smoked brisket, the Spirit of God is not at work in you. You just sit and eat smoked brisket together and find out what's going on in your life and it happens time and again. I'll meet somebody and go, you're smarter than I am. You just endured trauma early in life. You were not given the same opportunities and I should be so humbled to be in the place that I'm in. And it humbles and it brings us back together. Our friend Bob Lukafar leads beautiful weekends for Ecclesians at the prisons, Jubilee weekends. I'd encourage you to go and you're gonna find these big tattooed prisoners that you're supposed to be afraid of. And by the end of the weekend, you're like, that guy is a teddy bear and he loves Jesus and I love him and we are family. There's no other. Don't be afraid of the other. Two more and then we'll take communion. I believe, Ecclesia, that um, the world is not the place that it's supposed to be because we're a people that are afraid of failure. We become obsessed with success in a way that keeps us from doing anything. So I believe that each and every one of you have been created by God for a purpose and that God regularly whispers in your ear and says to you, you should do this. I made you to do this. And that you go, I'd fail. I'm not gonna do it. And the whole church and the whole world is missing out because you're afraid. There is no failure in the kingdom of God. There's just new opportunities. I don't wanna be in a community that's constantly afraid to fail. I wanna be a part of a community where people step forward and go, God whisper in my ear, I'm just gonna do it. I don't know. Could turn out awful. I'm just gonna do what I feel like God whispers in my ear. And you've got unique creative talents that I don't have. And if you're waiting on the pastors of our church to come up with every good idea, we're gonna get just a fraction, 0.001% of the amazing things that should happen. I had people come up and tell me before we went to the migrant caravan, like, I had, I had that idea, I thought I was supposed to do that. I'm like, why didn't you do it? I don't, I don't know, I just didn't think I could do it. Like, we didn't think we could do it, we just flew down there, right? We didn't know what we were doing. No clue what we were doing. But all we got to do, we just listen to Jesus. I got to tell you, I don't, if you fail serving Jesus, it'll make me so happy. If you pursue a big idea and it doesn't work out just flawlessly like you, I'll think it's amazing. If you're listening to that voice of the Spirit. Here's the last one and maybe the biggest one. Actually, see, I think that um, for most of us, that we are held back and the world is not the place that it should be because we're more afraid of people than we are of God. 
We care more what people think than what God thinks. And for most of us in our world, people have become really big. We think about what we're going to do. What will they think? What will people say? They they won't understand. Or one of the ways it plays out is because we live in a culture that's obsessed. It's obsessed with how we look. And our appearance has become so important that we often, I believe, spend more time and energy thinking about what other people think we look like than what God thinks of what we're actually doing. Now, realize, I get, this is a birth, some, you're just beautiful people. You're, I got the most beautiful church in the world, just beautiful people everywhere. But I don't know, some of you get here 35 minutes late pretty consistently, and I don't know if you're just perfecting things. It looks good, I don't know, but you've got that extra. And I just wonder, like, and, and again, I grew up in this world that said, especially at church, wear your best, look your best. And it, it, that is what it is. I, I wonder the opposite. I wonder if maybe this should be the place that you totally just come as you are. That maybe if you wear your best, it might be off-putting to somebody else who doesn't have the best. I mean, if you're just, you're, some of you are just too beautiful. It's intimidating for the rest of us. Just stop, right? Just stop. <laughs> It's too much for us. Let us be us, right? That this ought to be the one place that you can come and fully be. I, I also believe that it can feel a little bit like a seventh grade, you know, lunchroom where everybody thinks, I wonder what they think I look like, when nobody's really thinking about what you look like. They're thinking about what you think they look like. <laughs> and that together, we just say, hey, especially when we come to church, probably everywhere, but especially when we come to church, what we look like, is, it, do, it doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. And I just want to tell you, especially when it comes to our kids and grandkids, you've got to be aware that if we don't redefine for them the importance of outward appearances, the world's going to do it. If we don't find a way to say, hey, that's not what matters most. What you see on a magazine cover is not the thing. If we don't do that, the world's just gonna take over. It's gonna be default. Now, I don't think there's everything wrong with culture and I I don't think it's all broken, but I will tell you, I don't think the culture is selling God's understanding of our body and appearance. I think we ought to. And that our primary motivation ought to be, what does God think? Not what do people think. Would you bow with me as we come to a prayer? As we do that, I just want to read two things over you. Second Timothy chapter 1. This is what Paul says to Timothy, and I'm just going to pray it over you. He says, you see, God did not give us a cowardly spirit, but a powerful, loving, and disciplined spirit. Ecclesia, over each of you, what I would say to you is you do not have a cowardly spirit. You have a powerful and a loving and a disciplined spirit. Would you put that spirit to work in God's kingdom? Would you leave behind fear? As we come to prayer, there are many of you that are saying, I still am not sure what are the things I'm afraid of. I can only tell you that for me, they're the things that keep me up at night. They're the things that I think about when I can't turn my brain off. Whatever those things that tends to keep you up at night, would you just offer those back to God? My friend Dan Allender says it this way. He says, courage 
is simply fear that has said its prayers. Just identifying those fears, praying and giving them to God. And then we get a courage that's not our own. Lord God, we pray that we would be those courageous people, a people that lived without fear of what other people think, that truly care most about what you think. And so, Lord, we know that there are places in our lives and story, places of brokenness, places where people in our family have hurt us, places of despair, things we can't even approach and we're afraid of. We carry shame both for ourselves and for others. And, Lord, we ask today that you would take it, that we would take those deep-seated fears that we would offer them to you and that we would live in your courageous faith. Lord, we believe that this table, this table of the Eucharist, this table of your supper, we believe that it's a table of courageous love. It's a declaration of the way that you love and you invited us to love in the same ways. And so God, today we offer back our fears to you. We hand them over and we pray that together we could leave behind the one thing that is kryptonite to our ability to love and that we could live in the power of that love in a way that would just become reflex. Somebody slows down our day, they get in our way and instead of being offended for us, we move towards them with a desire to help. A family member is unkind and instead of returning it with unkindness, we recognize that they're afraid and we offer prayer and words of hope and comfort. Lord, we believe that these simple truths of abandoning fear and embracing love could lead us out of so many of the destructive patterns of our day. We ask God that as we come to this table that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would change us and transform us. We pray all of this together. We pray it in your name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ectasiahouston.org.